As a coach, are you more comfortable talking about what you do rather than how you do it? That's okay. Most of us coaches feel the same way, but our guest today thinks there is a better way. Most often at coaching seminars and conferences, the discussions are around the what of coaching, what it is that you are going to coach or what it is you are going to teach. Whereas this seminar or presentation, whatever you prefer to call it, is focused on the how to teach or how to coach. Perhaps maybe a little controversial at times in some of the things I say, but I think it offers a different perspective and things that coaches should consider because I don't think that we as coaches consider it enough. Travis Crickard retired as a player in 2010 and since then has worked in the CHL with the Ottawa 67s and the Kelowna Rockets. Travis also spent time in New Zealand as a general manager of the Botany Swarm and is currently an assistant coach with the St. John Sea Dogs of the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. Um, so this past year, you were the head coach of the Waterloo Wolves U18 uh, AAA team. Um, how was that, given all the difficulties and the kind of, you know, um, situation we've all been in the last year and a half? Yeah, Waterloo Wolves U18 hockey school, uh, because it never really got to a point where it looked like we were going to play games. So the emphasis was solely on individual player development all year. So for me, I think as a coach, that was kind of an interesting, almost like an experiment, if you will, to avoid all team play altogether and just focus on the minutiae within team play. Mm. And I really enjoyed that. It's something Did your I players enjoy it? Loved it. Really? Okay. I, like we, so one thing I like to do is I like to do a lot of um, surveying with my players anonymous and, and not anonymous and the feedback was fantastic uh anonymous or not anonymous and i feel like a, a lot of the relationships that we build with our players we being our coaching staff was very much founded on trust to a point where it seemed like they would be like bluntly honest with us about what they were thinking and a lot of them uh, described it to me as it felt like they were in a school of hockey and it felt very different for them from the standpoint of the coaching wasn't reactive. We didn't play games and then, and then get there on a Monday at practice and say, okay, here, we didn't do this well on Friday and Saturday. So we need to work on this today. They felt like, there was just kind of this logical process throughout the whole season and continuously building on individual skills and habits. And as a result, I think that they learned a lot, but the evidence for us was how they developed, but also what they said throughout the, the various points of, I guess I would call it assessment. Uh, in, in in how things went on the ice and how they were coached. Right. Um, I, I would say the beginning of the season, you probably had a much different idea of what you're going to do with the group. Um, so, you know, could you summarize in a you know, let's say in a, in a normal year and you're with that that age group? Could you summarize the um, environment you want to build around the team? Well, I think there's a few things. I think number one is learning is very important. So I would very much want to establish a point that this is more about learning than performance, because I think there's a, a distinction to be made between those two. I think learning is more about like what you can do in the future, whereas performance is what you can do right now. So that's number one. Number two is an environment 
as I mentioned, founded on trust to a point where we talk, we talk so much, but it, it's almost like it's not talking. It's more me asking them questions and them answering. And I found throughout this experiment this year, players are a lot more intelligent than we give them credit for. And they often have the answers. And, and the more questions you ask as a coach, I think it, it provides a sense of freedom for the players to be more open with you. So that would be number two. And number three, I kind of lost my train of thought there for a second, but number three, I think that it's really important to have an environment where players feel like they're having fun. Not, not necessarily where it's, it's simply just fun in a socially cohesive manner, but also in a task-oriented manner in the sense that the drills that we develop, the, the training sessions we develop, they're fun in nature so that it's appealing to the players. It's appealing to the coaches to want to be there. I didn't want our players to come to the rink thinking this practice is going to be just like the previous practice or or the practice before that. Obviously, repetition is very important, but it definitely, in my eyes, had to be more than one time, but more importantly, more than one way when we repeated things to, and I really think that kind of sparked interest and allowed our players to feel like it was, it was more of a, a fun environment rather than just continuously going through the, the motion of, of a general practice. So you mentioned there in the beginning of your first point that, that a lot of times the players are smart and they already have the answers. So when you first took over, um, or any other program that you first taken over, how did those individual meetings with the players go? Did you kind of lay it all out there and ask them what they think, or did you lay it all out there and say, this is, this is what we're building for? I think I probably didn't do a good enough job of that. And I say that because a few of the players I talked to at the end of the season told me that they really didn't, they really kind of struggled with me for the first month of the season from a standpoint of, of two, two reasons. One being the amount of questions I like to ask them. I think that they were uh, in previous situations where they were just constantly being told rather than being questioned. So as a result, that perhaps made them feel a little uncomfortable. And the second part of it was I'm not and, – and this is something I kind of experimented with this year is that I really wanted to get away from being a coach who stopped a drill after like one rep or stopped a player after one rep and corrected immediately because something I've kind of gleaned over time is that Sometimes a player is doing something wrong for a multitude of reasons. It could be he doesn't understand the skill exactly, or it could be he, he doesn't understand the drill. So I, th I, I, I realized that perhaps I should wait another rep or two and, and really try to assess if he was doing something incorrectly what was it that he was doing incorrectly? Was it the skill or was it a lack of understanding of the drill? So by not providing feedback after the first rep, as I mentioned earlier, some of the players really struggled with that in the first month. And some of them told me that they would be, let's say they'd be on the boards or in the corner or on the blue line thinking to themselves, why isn't he talking to me? Like, what is he doing? Is he just evaluating me? But when I, when I did tell them, I think like a month in, here's what I'm doing and here's why I'm doing it. It was really, ref I f it was really refreshing for them. 
I wish I had to did that right from the start, and that's my bad. Have you always been like that, uh, or is that something new that you picked up on the, you know, let it go a couple reps before you uh, before you start talking in the drill? It's something that I've been thinking about for the past, I think, probably two or three years. Uh, unfortunately, I, I don't think I've ever really been in on an, an environment where you can really control for that. Like I've been, I've been, I was an assistant coach for a long time. So having the chance to be a head coach again, really permitted me to develop the learning landscape for our team. So this was really my first crack at executing said teaching plans this year. You were an assistant coach before this with Kelowna, and, and they have a saying, managers manage, coaches coach, and players play. Um, can you explain the value of this, and, and was that kind of helping to define what you're talking about right now? I think there's two sides of that. Okay. I see value in it from the standpoint that it provides – from a coaching perspective, it provides you with freedom to just coach. You don't need to worry about scouting or evaluating. Here's your team, develop these players. So you very much know your role and your responsibilities within that. So it provided that kind of freedom or comfort but it also kind of felt as though we worked in silos at times. In my eyes, I think there should be connection between uh, management coaches and players from the standpoint uh, coaches and manage management congregate to discuss the kind of players the team needs for the style of play or these types of uh, components of building a team. And, and obviously when we get to the player players part, yes, we, we very much just want them to play, but I think the, the top tier of those kind of two silos, I feel like there needs to be more than just you're doing this, you're doing this, you're doing this. I feel like there needs to be, some complimentary work that goes on there between the two. So then, you know, I, I know, uh, you know, I guess let's, let's imagine if you will, uh, that you're named the head coach of a CHL team um, or just now in Waterloo, um, you know, with what you just said in mind, how, how would you begin to build or how would you like to see the organization, uh, you know, um, interact with each other? Well, I have a bit of, Intel based from what I've learned talking to other coaches and, and teams and managers. And I think that the, there needs to be, or there needs to be a, a, a point or multiple points throughout a, a season where discussion needs to be had concerning a few things. One being, what the team is going to look like for that season in terms of the, the, the beginning, the tryouts or selection, if you will. Uh, then there likely needs to be a discussion pertaining to the initial roster cutdown date. Then there needs likely to be many discussions leading up to a trade deadline based on where the team is currently, where it's projected to be come playoff time, and if it's a team that is either contending or not contending, what needs or should be done with the roster. And then I also believe that when it comes time to draft, I think there needs to be communication between management and the coaching staff pertaining to what the team's depth chart looks like in one year, two years, three years, four years. I don't necessarily think that coaches need to be providing input on potential players to draft because we don't have any time for that shit. 
that's what that's what that's what the ma- the management does. They're on the road scouting the players, but I do believe there should be some discussion surrounding what the team's going to look like in a number of years time. Just so you have an idea, let's say we never want to get to a point where we have six left-handed defensemen. In in three years' time, we look at our roster and we are not going to have any right-handed defensemen. So perhaps that would be something that coaches and management could or should communicate. And I know that the the organizations who do or follow that kind of process engage in that regularly. It's funny. I thought you were going to go a different direction with that question or the, your answer specifically. Um, I like using that uh, similar philosophy uh, with players sometimes. I think in the beginning of a season um, with a new group, um, there can be a dangerous point where some players feel the need to um, tell their player what to do or they want to talk to referees too much and just try and you know, stay in your lane, so to speak, but I can definitely appreciate what you're saying there. We don't want to be siloed off and not have any conversation amongst the various um, members of the organization. Um, so looking back at your time with Kelowna, um, you coached Carson Torsky, I might have butchered the last name there, uh, for a couple of seasons with the Rockets, and um, he wanted you there when he signed his first NHL contract. Uh, why is that your best sporting memory? I always thought my best sporting memories were related to winning, and and some of them definitely are. But when Carson came to us from the Calgary Hitmen, he was already a third-round NHL draft pick, and his play had somewhat plateaued wasn't really scoring more than 20 goals and not that scoring goals is the be all end all but nothing was really changing in his game and he came to us as a 19 year old so effectively he had a year and a half of junior hockey left And I actually had the opportunity to speak quite a bit with Philadelphia's uh, scouting staff because they would come watch a fair bit. That was one of the benefits of coaching major junior hockey. You get to speak to a lot of scouts. And they had high expectations for Carson. And I just really felt like through communication, uh, either with them or with him, that there there was more there. He had a lot of potential, but he wasn't realizing it. So that really became the first time for me that I understood the value of legitimate personal investment in a player. I think all coaches talk about the importance of player development, but when I think of like legitimate personal development, I'm talking about like losing sleep over how can I make this specific player better. He was he was a great person. Well, I was never losing sleep over him being like a bad person. It was just how can I help him get better? What can I do? And uh, and we focused on a few things throughout his 20 year old season, and there were some super positive moments there were some super difficult moments but when he when he called me to tell me that he was signing the contract and that he wanted me to be there it just it just felt so good to see how personal development or personal investment in someone can really make all the difference yeah, coaching business is a people business, and um, I think you speak there really a personal connection with the player. So, um, just to kind of follow up with this question a little bit, um, you mentioned you know being a major junior, seeing lots of NHL scouts. You know, do you feel pressure at times in that position um, from the NHL clubs who were there 
you know, perhaps with their development goals or plan for a player versus the team you're working for is playing? I never, I never felt it. Uh, the, any scouts or sometimes teams would send their player development people to, to work specifically with players they had selected. They'd, they'd come to Kelowna or when I was in Ottawa and they would do specific work with them individually on the ice. And not once did I ever feel pressure. Not once did I ever really feel any difference in opinion in terms of how the player's development needed to be approached simply because if the player was selected to a team and the team had an opinion of how they felt the player needed to be developed to play in that organization, then in my opinion, as a, as his coach in major junior, I should logically follow what the NHL team wants because that's going to offer that player the best chance to play in that organization. If they're, if they're developing a, a specific plan for him and then giving it to me, the coach and, and the player, I, I think it's our job to develop the player. If we're talking about the junior organization itself, I think that anytime a player develops it's only going to help the mission of the organization and typically it's it's winning the only way you're going to win is draft really well and then develop your players really well maybe sprinkle in the odd really good trade which Kelowna doesn't make any of right boy oh boy uh not not many there were i think the when I was there, there were there were two years that we kind of made some big deals when we were going on deep runs in the playoffs. But typically, they like to stick with their guys. They're pretty loyal to their players that they that they draft. Yeah, I can appreciate that. Um, you've been coaching for some time, Travis, and um, you know, was there a specific moment or a year they got bitten by the coaching bug? Yeah, yeah. Um, So coaching started for me is my last year of playing college hockey and I got, I got injured. I had, a, I had a really bad ankle injury and I was thinking that I was going to, I, I had the option to red shirt and then I was going to come back for kind of like a, a victory lap i was like done school but i was i was thinking it's time to come back for uh, a victory lap and play another year and maybe see if i could you know crack a minor pro team after that but um my coach at the time he had a he had a meeting with me and he asked me would i consider coaching and as we we talked about and asked him what that would look like he said being an assistant coach uh, on on that team that I played for or an assistant coach with another local team. And at the time, I thought it was just outlandish. I was It actually like pissed me off a lot because I wanted to keep playing. And I remember I left the office. I cursed him up and down for days and weeks. I was thinking I, I was thinking in my head that he was telling me that because he was just not going to have me back on the team. So why not coach? But it actually ended up being he thought that I had a lot of leadership capabilities that would lead to being a good coach. So I, I gave it some thoughts and. I ended up uh, having the opportunity to coach with Canton in New York. And 
I, I enjoyed it. I wouldn't say that I had the coaching like bug for sure then, but I felt like it was something that I wanted to keep doing. So I moved to Ottawa to do my master's at the University of Ottawa. And I think it was kind of somewhere somewhere in there. My first year in Ottawa, I was an assistant coach with the Ottawa Junior 67s Midget Triple R U18 Triple A now it's called. And I think it was somewhere in there. I felt like I was able to really develop strong relationships with players. It felt good. It felt good to still be able to be on the ice. It felt great to be on the bench. And it felt fantastic to see players make improvement based on how I taught. So I think it was it was somewhere somewhere in that first year in Ottawa where I really started to get into it. You know, your your playing career uh, was at SUNY Potsdam, uh, the Potsdam Canton area with Clarkson, Potsdam, Canton, and that you just mentioned, and St. Lawrence. It's one of the best collegiate uh, atmospheres around in in the states or Canada. What was it like being a student athlete there? A lot of fun. Yeah. It was, it was really busy from the standpoint of a typical student athlete schedule, but it was a lot of fun because practically our whole team was Canadian. So that was, that was a great start in, in itself. So it just felt like immediately everyone got along with each other. And then I and basically seven of my still best friends live together for four years. So I don't really know how much better it could be than that. Living with uh, living with your best friends and also having the opportunity to compete with them on a, on a weekly basis in games. And then we had a relatively good following from the, the student body. Although they never showed up till the second period because they were usually <laughs> still pre-gaming in their dorms. And, uh, and then, and then, uh, I just, I, I just was, I just found it super easy to develop relationships with people, whether it was my teammates, uh, uh, professors, other students. Heck, I, I feel like I left there uh, being best friends with everyone in the who worked in the cafeteria. Yeah. It just felt like it just felt so easy to to build relationships with people. Yeah, it's, it's an awesome area. I spent a lot of time there and uh, it's just it's one of the best collegiate atmospheres around. It's it's, it's a really great place to go to school. Um, and and so, you know, you, you had that experience there. And as you mentioned, you jumped right into coaching. You didn't play. And and, and coaching nowadays is is full of most filled with mostly people who play professional. Um so what's, what is some advice you'd give a young coach who has passion for their sport that maybe played collegiately like, like you but didn't play professional? Uh, I'll, I'll give them the same advice one honest person once gave me because I've asked that same question myself many times and the answers honestly – or the answers usually just stay the course or keep working at it. But one time someone told me, boy, you've got a long road ahead of you. It's going to be real tough. I'd give yeah. the same advice. <laughs> Along that road, who do you consider some of your mentors? I would say that two come to mind. Number one is a guy that I coached U18 AAA in Ottawa with. My first year as an assistant, he was the other assistant. And then my second year when I was the head coach, I, I, uh, I brought him as my assistant. And he's, he's, uh, he doesn't coach anymore. The, the, the year that I was the head coach was his last year of coaching, but we still keep in contact regularly. And I consider him a mentor not because of hockey's tactical or technical game. 
I consider him a mentor because he's incredibly well-read, knows a ton about leadership. And anytime I'm thinking of something or in a position where I kind of need a second opinion, he's the first person I go to. And he'll give me some thoughts from, gosh, it could be a leader in the business world. He loves his like military history. He'll give me an example of something he read. So from leadership perspective, it would be him. And then from hockey, tactical or coaching elements, it would be the first head coach I worked for in Kelowna, Dan Lambert. I shouldn't say worked for. I'll say worked with because that's that's the kind of environment he created created for us. Anytime I think I need something regarding coaching, hockey, etc., I'll call him and he'll be quick to respond. He'll be quick to supply me with something that I'm looking for. But I think the best part about Dan is he he's a great listener and. I know I alluded to the idea of a lot of question asking initially. He's probably the only other coach that I've worked with who asks a fair number of questions of their staff members or players. So, I mean, you mentioned leadership there. You mentioned two really good leaders that have helped you. Um, can you name some leadership books you've read or, or and or, I guess, define what leadership means to you? yeah i'm just i i actually i'm trying to i'm trying to write this dissertation proposal right now so i literally have like all kind of my favorite books on the floor around me so uh i really enjoy bill walsh's uh the score takes care of itself i always consult that one i enjoy wade gilbert's coaching better every season Alex Ferguson's leading. And then there's some other books on coaching. I wouldn't really classify them as leadership per se. I'd probably say they're more uh, regarding like how to coach or how to teach or communicate within teaching. And then leadership itself for me, I just think it's the opportunity to open open up kind of a a world of possibility for people who follow you or the opportunity to influence them in a positive direction so uh have you done any like uh the culture books like john gordon's books or anything like that or are you mostly just focused on on the on like the technical tactical or like the overall coaching aspect I hardly ever focus any on any technical or tactical stuff uh, simply because I feel like that – I don't know if market's the right word, but that market in coaching is so saturated right now. Sure. Uh, I do really enjoy the culture books. I, I, I have a number of them. But I'm really – like right now, I'm really, really interested in how – to communicate as a coach, how to teach as a coach. What are some logical processes, either in practices or meetings, whether group or individual, that you as a coach can use to facilitate better learning? That's what I'm really keen on right now. So in that vein, um, you ran a seminar uh, for coaches or the coaches like sorry called uh, one more more than one time more than one way optimal teaching strategies for athletes why should coaches watch this seminar they should watch it because most often at coaching seminars and conferences the discussions are around the what of coaching what it is that you are going to coach or what it is you are going to teach. Whereas this seminar or presentation, whatever you prefer to call it, 
is focused on the how to teach or how to coach. So it's perhaps maybe a little controversial at times in some of the things I say, but I think it offers a different perspective and things that coaches should consider because I don't think that we as coaches consider it enough. Okay, so what are some of the things that we don't consider enough as coaches? Just one moment. Okay, so the, here's, the, here's the first one. I think it's pretty common that every coach or player wants short meetings, short team meetings, short any kind of meeting. And I am no different in that. But I think the problem is that it becomes about trying to cram in as much information as possible in that short period of time. When if we know anything from like cognitive science or neuroscience, we would know that the working memory can only really hold about two to four items in a small period of time. So if you really want to structure a meeting correctly and have it short, you would really only focus on two or three things that are really going to make a big difference for your team in a game or a practice or a week. But often the focus of the time part is simply on it's going to be five minutes. How much can we get in here? It's not about it's going to be five minutes. How can we deliver this information so that it can be processed and then potentially remembered and used on the ice? So that that's that's one thing definitely that when I present on that specific topic that I'm talking about. That's one thing I like to talk about a lot. I heard so many like, hockey coaches. I, I don't know if this is a like a research-based um, philosophy, but sometimes you hear, okay, we have to have short meetings, uh, 11 minutes, 10 minutes, 8 minutes. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, well, these guys can handle a longer meeting than that. But regardless, um, that's such a small amount of time. And just like you said, you're going to try and cram a whole bunch in there. It's not going to be successful anyway. I don't know where that philosophy of that amount of time is. You know, I mean – for myself as a teacher, um, talk about, you know, typically it's every every year the person is older, is another minute or two they can, um, you know, cognitively um, digest or understand new information. So anyway, that's just a, a, a personal um, a philosophy. But um, <laughs> you've done many different uh, coaching tours among other organizations. Uh, I've been fortunate in that way. Uh, how did you set those up? And is there one that stands out for you? Well, before we get to that, you you really uh, you baited me because I want to talk I want to talk about that a little more. And okay, no problem. The the part about the length of the meeting, it's so anecdotal. It's it's almost unbelievable because there is no empirical evidence to suggest how long the meeting should be. It's simply because. Most coaches have been taught by a coach who was taught by a coach who was taught by a coach who was taught by a coach. So it simply just keeps filtering down. And the the time length, as you say, I mean, I think you go into any different any environment and it's always five minutes, seven minutes, eight minutes. But if you ask why is that? One of the first answers you'll likely get is that the meeting needs to be short. And then you say, well, why does it need to be short? Well, the players want it to be short. Why do they want it to be short? They want it to be short because they don't – they can't handle a lot of information. And then my thought process is, okay, if they can't handle a lot of information at once, why do we structure it in a fashion that it's a short period of time and cram in as much information as possible? It, it, it's like – it's backwards to me. So to, to answer your question about how I set up coaching tours, I 
I just I essentially email or pick up phone really. It's it's not um, some specific process. Uh, sometimes you just guess what people's emails might be. And sometimes they get bounced back saying Microsoft can't deliver this email or whatever it might be. But sometimes you, you guess right and it's the most amazing thing ever. I remember, I'll give you an example. I remember I guessed Steve Hansen with uh, New Zealand All Blacks email and it never bounced back. So I thought, okay, maybe I've guessed it right. And then he wrote me like a week later. And if my if my wife was on this call with with you guys, she'd tell you like I I think I jumped through the ceiling. I was so excited. <laughs> Do you want to speak that about that to her or or another one that stands out for you? Yeah, that one's fine. Uh, it was it was interesting because it wasn't it wasn't overly structured. It was more of you're going to get a text message in the morning and it will tell you where to be, be there. Some mornings you're not going to get a text message and that means you can't come. So I think I would get a text around, I don't know, 9 a.m. most mornings and it would say, okay, we're going to be at this stadium between 2 and 5 p.m., go through this door give your name, et cetera, or we're going to be at this hotel doing meetings, come here, sit on the meetings, or I'm going to be at this coffee shop, come sit with me for an hour and a half and we can talk. Like every day was something different, but it was just uh, a, a really cool opportunity. Um, so it was a lot of fun. It was kind of intimidating at times for a few reasons. One, because of how big the players were. Two, because of how I just couldn't believe I was hanging out with the, these like this world-class team three because of how much security they have and how many times per day, whenever I was with them, security would ask me who I was. So that was kind of scary slash annoying at the same time. But I learned so much from how those coaches and that team operates. And usually the question I always get is what is the biggest thing you learned from them? The biggest thing I learned from them is how much they use science to inform their practice as coaches or how they operate on a daily basis. It would, if I was to summarize it simply, it would be that. Yeah, not to pump your tires too much, Travis, but the first way, or the first way I got introduced to you was um, you gave a seminar for what would be the Roger Nielsen um, clinic group, if you will, and it was a very long video seminar, but every minute I thought it was just so, so insightful, and I actually thought it was better than the book Legacy, which might get some people worked up, but, um, <laughs> and then uh, behind the scenes look, you know, um, both Mark and I have coached um children of a colleague of yours and that's how we kind of got connected so um but along the lines with the all blacks you know you talked about individual player development and um and here you're talking about you know how you use science and i would say the science of education um so looking at player development are there some uh, best practices to ensure that each player is improving over the course of a season i think there has to be many regular assessment points and I'm still trying to figure out how many assessment points there needs to be and the assessment point for me means if let's say for example let's say a development phase for me right now is four weeks I'm just hypothetically speaking because I'm still trying to figure out how long it should be. I give, I give, or in conjunction with a player, we discuss three things that he needs to really try to spend some time focusing on and, and working on this phase. The assessment for me is whether he can do it in a game or not. 
I think there's schools of thought that you can develop drills, like have him do this drill or set of drills as baseline and then come back to it at the end of the phase. But really all that player's doing is getting better at the drill. I want to see, can he apply those things in a game? And, and then if the player can apply one thing, two things, three things in a game, then we'll establish some new things, but we won't just throw those things away that he previously worked on. We will keep interleaving those things, coming back to them from point to point to point throughout the process. But overall, the aspect of player development there needs to be regular touch points. And more specifically, I've found that you need to start the conversation with let's talk about your development. Because I've found that if it's not initially framed that way, the player does not necessarily know that you're talking about his development. Just a little uh, thing I've, I've learned over time. So sorry to cut you off there. So, you know, you mentioned the All Blacks and the coaching tour, you know, involved a lot of science. When you're doing these player assessments, how much is it uh, science or analytic based uh, or how much is it just, you know, purely skill based? You you, you know, to take it really easy, you can't stick handle yet. So we got to teach you to stick handle. So how I try to. How I typically try to frame this process for the player is. Majority, if not all, the players. I'll talk about this this U18 level I'm currently coaching, uh, and and we'll exclude goalies for a second. Majority, if not all, the players. They they all at the beginning of the season. They all tell me I want to create more offense. I want to score more goals, or defenseman. I want to be involved in offense more, etc. So, for me, a lot of this revolves around. Uh, puck touches. So I like to analyze each player's puck touches. And once you do that over a period of time, you start to notice a lot of themes for players, how they catch passes, where they are when they catch passes, where they are when they shoot, how they shoot, etc. So then when we start to get into those nuances, you can really build specific items or specific objectives for them. And the cool thing is, is that by the end of said development phase, I'm still tracking the puck touches and I can, I can not only see, but I can quantify whether there's been a change or not. So that's a, that's a really simple process for me to engage in the, development process from a, a standpoint of like watching the players, but also being able to quantify it with them. So you're a little younger than I am, uh, but I, I came from an age where analytics meant nothing, right? And so when you were playing either at SUNY Potsdam or before then, was analytics a part of your experience as a player? And is that why um, you kind of like to go that route? Or is that something that more you just – just kind of picked up through your, your coaching journeys or tours. It was definitely not something that was a part of my, my playing days. I, in some regards, I, I wish it was because I'm definitely not, definitely not someone who relies solely on numbers. I think there's like a, a combination, but I think numbers can show you trends in certain things. And as a goalie, I would have loved to know shooters trends, not saying that it would have made me any better. I was pretty shitty goalie as it was, but <laughs> just, I don't, I, I just think that it provides a sense of understanding and comfort to know about certain trends and, and where, where I picked up on it. I don't, I don't, 
we had a we had a, a young lad when I was with the Ottawa 67s, Matt Pfeffer, who did uh, who did a lot of statistical analysis for us. But at the time, I had no idea what he was doing, and it it rarely ever made any sense to me. And I sat with him a number of times trying to understand this. And when I went to Kelowna. They never had anything in place for statistical analysis of games. So I kind of made it a point to try to introduce statistical analysis as a, as a means of measuring our performance, measuring our learning, measuring what we're doing in practices. And over time, uh, some of the coaches I worked with saw value in it and it, it kind of kept growing and growing and growing. So, I would say that me not understanding any of it when I was in Ottawa enticed me to kind of develop some like key performance indicators or key learning indicators that made sense from a coach's perspective when I got to Kelowna. So, I mean, you spoke a lot about, um, you know, kind of your desire to learn and improve throughout this whole podcast. Uh, what keeps you curious? Kind of what keeps you going in that avenue of, of, of your coaching career? I just want to continuously try to get better at communicating my thoughts or my teaching process with my players so that their time is maximized from the standpoint that if we only have one hour on the ice, I'm doing as little talking as possible so that they, they have the opportunity to perform more reps. Now I'm not saying that I'm just going to stand there and do nothing and they're just going to do all the drills. But what I am saying is that, if there, if I am stopping a drill or if I am talking to a player, how can I say the most with the least? How can I speak to the team, get a message across in 30 seconds or less? Those are the kinds of things right now that are like really pushing buttons for me and, and making me want to get, get better. I think something I had trouble with when I was a coach, uh, you know, your age and even a little older was, was that work-life balance. I was just like you. I was very curious, always uh, trying to, to, to drive, you know, 15 hours to Navy stadium to sit there with the, the Navy coach or whatever it might be. Um, but I didn't have a good work-life balance, you know, and, uh, and I do now. Um, but how do you try and find a work-life balance while still trying to be a continuous learner? Time blocking. I would say that although I don't know him, Cal Newport has become a good friend of mine. I've read a couple of his books and sometimes I'll listen to his his podcast. I can't remember what it's called. Maybe it's like Deep Questions or something. Uh, and I'll, usually he'll post what the questions are ahead of time. So if I, if I see some questions that I like, I'll listen to it. Sometimes I don't see any questions that I like and I won't, but he talks a lot about time blocking and how beneficial it can be because we live in such a world of distraction right now, phones and emails and everything. But if, if you can become a master of time blocking, it can really do wonders for providing you with some sense of balance although i will not say i have total balance definitely not you might be you might be the person to talk to mark about that not i <laughs> it's well i i think i have a good work-life balance maybe my wife doesn't but no i mean i think for me the biggest thing travis is is um is 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 years of marriage and working it out like what's going to work and what's not going to work right and um and I think, uh, you know, I think, you know, all the things that you do, I, I don't know, when you went to New Zealand, did, did your did your wife go with you? Did your, you know, what, what did you guys do with that? Like, did she try to go on as many trips with you as possible? And I know you said you have some kids as well. So at the time, uh, we, we never, uh, so we just have 
the one daughter at the time when we went to New Zealand, we never had any kids and, and she came and that's actually, uh, that's kind of the present we came back from New Zealand with, uh, <laughs> no, that, awesome. uh my wife is pregnant with our, with our daughter, but I don't really think much would change in that regard. If I get opportunities to do said things, try if, if my wife's uh, work or career will permit it. I mean, everyone has a little bit of vacation time here and there, bring the whole family and it could be turned into a bit of a, a family vacation, albeit I'll likely be away for a few hours at a time. But uh, uh, a good friend of mine, Wade Gilbert, he does this very often when he goes to meet with teams or coaches or whomever. He often tries to bring his family along as much as possible, and it seems to really work for them. It provides uh, provides them an opportunity to go places that they probably never even thought of going to before. So that's kind of the approach I'm trying to take with it. Sure, for sure. Well, Travis, uh, we really appreciate your time. I, I know that you've listened to the podcast before, so you're probably ready for this question. But you know, we are we started this journey to to become continuous learners ourselves and uh, talk to a lot of great minds like yourself, um, but also to inspire others. So uh, on that journey, who do you think that we should interview next? I just talked about him, Wade Gilbert. You got to get him on. I, I don't know if you've had him on already, but no. uh, you got to have him on. Just uh, incredible amount of insight. He's worked with so many teams. He actually, I think he's probably traveling back from the Tokyo Olympics right now. He was uh, working with the Canadian women's softball team. Uh, who just won bronze medal first I think there's the first medal in the history for the for the women's program so to me having that guy on would be uh, be a huge get he was on the coaches road as well I think um, and uh, is his book the one coaching the full season or um, is that was I can't remember the exact title but there it is that's the one yeah yeah this is like the the Bible of coaching. It's like almost 500 pages. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it's on my list. That's on my list to buy next. I, I keep buying more, and I got to stop because, like, uh, you look behind me, and some of them are down here. And I, I'm not sure I'm going to get those anytime soon, but I keep buying more. <laughs> yeah, if you if you if you're gonna read Wade's, you need to like basically set aside like three months so i don't know if it's like a summer thing because it, it honestly it's it's so good but it's like it's not uh, it's it's like a textbook honestly right but it's it has so much valuable information okay well i'm gonna try it's on my list so i'm gonna buy it at some point and uh, maybe i won't try and spend a summer reading it but i'll i'll try and chip away at it slowly uh, maybe in between class or something. Um, thanks again, Travis. Really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate uh, the chance to chat. Yeah, thanks, Travis. Appreciate it. a lot of good nuggets there for everybody, and we'll uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Sounds good. All right, take care, man. So, Darsh, uh, that was a great conversation. I know that uh, we, you know, we we did this one six months ago or so, um, and it's just getting ready to to go on air uh, here today. Um, but a lot of really relevant stuff. I think it's um, it's interesting always talking to the hockey guys, especially when you're coming from the perspective of a, of a field lacrosse coach, right? Because there's so many similarities and there's so many differences and there's so many things that we can each take from each other. Um, the one, uh, I guess the one thing that I, I wish we did a little more in this conversation is go back and forth with some of our ideas. He had a lot of really great ideas on, on culture, on leadership, and on, you know, tactical versus technical and, and a lot of different things. Um, but I, I know I learned a lot, and there's a lot that I can take from it uh, to bring to the, the to the programs that I coach. You know, that spot where he talked about, um, you know, or you asked him, I think it was, about uh, what he, he dives into on his own side to, you know, continue to get better. And um, 
he felt that the technical and tactical is so oversaturated in the coaching marketplace that he's really focusing on teaching and communication strategies, uh, which I found interesting, um, you know, and how it relates to lacrosse, of course. But, um, you know, fundamentally, you can have good ideas, but if you can't communicate them and you can't teach them, then they're useless anyway. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit. Uh, I forget when, maybe a couple weeks back, but, you know, we talked about, how field lacrosse is is very you know for me coming into into Canada and coming into box lacrosse field lacrosse is very tactical you know there's many different ways that you can play there's many different styles that you can bring to it there's different ways to shut down opposing offenses and defenses and from a coaching side it's it really is a, a tactical lot where box lacrosse isn't that much you know not that there isn't all those things you can do but it's more free flowing. The shot clock has a lot to do with that. And, you know, I found that part of the conversation for me, at least, is where I'll apply that on, on the box side, you know, those kind of things. And also try to bring those concepts to the field side and, and maybe, you know, maybe uh, lessen a little bit of the tactical stuff and focus more on the on the free flow and the free play. Because he is right. It's a super oversaturated market and everyone's going to tell you to do it a different way. Yeah, lots of different ways to skin a cat, right? Is that the old saying? The old saying. That's a quick way to say it, but you know me, I'm a talk. <laughs> um, the one thing, you know, we talked about coming into the program and being in the pandemic, and uh, we all laughed in the beginning when he said he's only been to was his, his house, his daycare, um, and I think, well, his child's daycare, and I think maybe the arena with the three places he'd frequented that far on Waterloo. Um but he spoke about coming into a new uh, team and, you know, coaches uh, all coach differently, right? And we all do that to be all of our own style. Um, but having to communicate with the players, um, you know, his, part of his reflection was, I came in and wanted to coach this way, but I never told my players that. And so it kind of left them a little confused for the, first, for the first two months of the season. You know, what is this guy doing? I don't really understand the environment he's trying to create because he hasn't really told us what he's doing. And, um and so we talked about, you know, wanting to uh, create that environment of of a learning versus performing environment, um, and how he how he was going to do that, um, uh, you know, through the um, the conversations he have with his with his players and asking them lots of questions and and making them, you know, think about um, the reason they're doing whatever it is, you know, drills or skills, um, even the tactics that are you know, they're utilizing in their game context, um, but kind of constantly enforcing that idea of learning and and wanting to improve um, instead of focusing on, okay, we need to perform, um, you know, and if we don't perform, then we're not successful. Uh, so just trying to changing around a little bit the lens in which um, the players and, and Travis was viewing, um, you know, their process throughout the season, right? It, with that same thing in mind, Darcy, he talked about leadership and his definition of leadership is, you know, the opportunity to open up a world of possibilities for people to follow and opportunities to take the team in a positive direction. And I found that, you know, it was just relevant to me right now. It's not a groundbreaking thing that he said. I think anyone would would agree. Yeah, that's a, a, a great definition of leadership. Um, but right now we're we're going through a thing with Carlton where we're trying to to really define what a leader is and, and what's our captain's roles. What are what are they responsible for? And we're going to put them through some leadership trainings. And, you know, you said to me, well, what's what's a, like what, what's a leader? What do we want to get out of this? And, you know, it was before I started to edit the podcast and I didn't really have that have that definition concrete. You know, and I, I thought it was interesting that in a podcast in the middle of it without any prep. He could just hammer off what his definition of leadership was, you know, and I've thought a lot since then about, you know, being more mindful with what we're trying to do. Right. So it's one thing to say we want to grow leaders. We want to have a leadership council. It's another thing to. So what philosophy are we going to follow? And we've kind of settled on like the stoic philosophy a little bit with them. Um, but it was just uh, I thought it was a really important piece that, you know, I recommend to myself and to other coaches have that definition ready to go. Like what's a leader to you? What's a captain to you? 
You know, what's a what's a great teammate to you? What's a bad teammate to you? What's not a good leader? Define those so you have them. So when you see them, you know what you're looking at and and how it fits to your team. Sometimes the best ways to make these definitions or try and like brainstorm them is to think of the five senses. And if you think of the five senses that we humans have, um, you know, that's a better way to at least define or begin to define some of these topics. Um, and that's something I've always tried to use at times, <laughs> um, you know, in lessons or just in talking with guys about what it is they think um, being a good teammate is, being a leader is. Um, and you can define those things through the way, because we have our five senses uh, as humans, right? And so that's how we experience the world. Um, so when we're trying to make those definitions and we're struggling, you know, it's a, a framework that I've tried to function within. Um, you mentioned the Stoic philosophers, and uh, I think both of us would be remiss if we didn't touch on the fact that Travis said, uh, or my question to him was, you know, you have uh, someone with non, no pro playing experience, um, what would you say to them, right? And uh, he chuckled and said, you have a long road ahead. <laughs> um, you know, and just that philosophy of, the road won't be easy, the road will be long, but if it's a road that you want to travel, then you will go to where you want to go, right? And uh, I think a lot of Travis's experience kind of show that, you know, a lot of his work shows that, um, but it is certainly, um, you know, something for for those people out there who are, you know, wanting to um, follow a path in coaching and, and don't have that uh, um, experience to put in the resume um, to gain the instant credibility at uh, times that, you know, pro playing experience gives you. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the, the obstacle is the way, right? You know, and I think if I look at a different sport, I look at the NBA and I look at Steve Nash as the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets, right? And so obviously he gets it because he's a, a great basketball mind, has a has a high resume as a player, um, is is very good at, at what he does, Um but he's struggling right now as a coach and he doesn't have that, that background. And I know a lot of coaches that, you know, in the lacrosse community that get frustrated. Sometimes they've been grinding away for a long time. Maybe they're just a, a D three player um, much like myself. And, and they're missing out on opportunities to guys who are 24, 25 years old and, 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 you know, maybe play in the PLL or maybe played in the MLL or, or just, you know, have played at a higher level. They played high D one. Um, and I just, you know, my, my advice to them is the same I give myself is the obstacles, the way, and just keep grinding, keep going. And, you know, there's a lot to be said about being 35 when you get your first job and being really prepared for that and really ready to go. And once you get that job, it doesn't matter what your resume is. It matters what you do with the position when you're in it, you know, you don't want to jump too high too soon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how many coaches burn out? You know, Steve Nash, like, you know, he would have benefited a lot from being an assistant coach for a while.